Welcome. This is Wordless Truth. This is Wordless Truth Christian Church. This is Doug Presley, and we are ready to begin our worship service. It is 11-10-2021, and we will begin with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. We're pleased to be here. We're, it is your will that you called us uh, as a church, and as we stand here today, from eternity past, we are answering that call. So we thank you for your choosing us, and Father, we pray as we begin our worship service that you will give us wisdom so that we can understand the verses before us, knowing that the whole goal is that we come to know you better. That we Not only that, but we, know, we come to know your eternal purpose for our lives and for the world. We thank you for each person here and the families that they represent. We pray for healing, comfort. Uh, Father, you know exactly what each of us needs, and we pray for each person that we uh, have on our hearts right now. All of that and other blessings we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Okay, so we are uh, approaching Romans chapter 10. We are starting that tonight, Romans 10, 1. And uh, you should have notes. And we have come through the review of Romans 9. We've completed it. So I'm hoping that everyone has some benefit from Romans 9. Uh, I think there's so much controversy around those verses. I hope we brought some clarity to the table. Some, I, I hope we added something to the theological platform that's out there. So we, we can continue as we, we will in Romans 10. And we, I pray that and expect that the Lord will open our hearts and minds to uh, what is there as well. And it will benefit us as we go through those verses. So what we have is some opportunity, a little bit of time before we get into this new chapter. We'll take some time for Q&A. So the floor is open. I think I started last week. Does anybody have anything this week? Start. Otherwise, I'll continue with my question about the specific calling of Israel after the rapture. I wanted to um, get some clarity. There was something that was mentioned, and I didn't get to listen to the whole recorded Q&A. Um, but I remember there being something you said uh, in, in, the, in the midst of all of it. You said that um, Israel wasn't going to be under the entire law. And I, I forget what part of it you left was, was not to be included, whether it was festival laws or, or dietary laws or something like that. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm still trying to get a clear picture 
of what it is that Israel is going to, what's going to be their distinguishing call um, after the rapture. And are they, are they going to be a light unto the Gentiles, um, that kind of thing? Are they still going to be, um, are they going to be practicing the law um, over again? Um, because we know people who are practicing law now are not saved. Um, well, because they're, we know that's only a calling, but um, whether the person saved or not is determined whether or not they're in the church, in the body of Christ. So Israel itself is not um, in the light right now, but it will be. So when it is back in the light after the rapture, what is their distinguishing characteristic? Yeah. Um... Thanks for that question. I, I appreciate that because it gives us more opportunity to discuss this uh, matter about Israel and what happens after Rugan. So yes, I think Israel, uh, we discussed last week about uh, what would it be like for them in the tribulation. And we discussed uh, a verse, Revelation twelve seventeen, which uh, talks about Israel keeping... The, com the commandments of God and having the testimony of Jesus. So we can also add to that, which I didn't say, well, was already understood, but I could add that they have the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So those who have the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So uh, there's... As we discussed, there's two applications of the law. One is uh, as a means of condemnation, awareness for everyone who is born in Adam, that they are uh, condemned under the, they're dead to God, under the wrath of God, we could say. And two, as a way of life for those in Judaism who are saved. Right? If you're saved, Right? And you, in other words, you've come through the uh, the law from the standpoint of salvation because you understood you were condemned. Now, what is your way of life? And the, the way of life for you is the law. So there, we quoted some verses from Psalm one nineteen to discuss the spiritual life of the Israelite. What was it like? How did they understand it? You could almost look at it like this. And I know I'm trying to add a little bit more than what we talked about last week. So we could think about the life of the church. right? What is our spiritual life? And we can think about all the verses, the calling, and you know who we are, what God intends for us. We can think about all the scriptures that detail our conduct while here. And what is the future hope uh, of the church? Well, you can do the same thing with Israel. Israel didn't have any, any of that, which I just spoke about for the church, but they do have a hope and a destiny and con a, a mode of conduct that God expects from them, and that's under the law. Uh, and yes, they were to be God's priest nation to the world, a nation among nations, we could say. Uh, and 
you know, I, I think, I don't know who had it. I don't know if it was George Bush's campaign speech or something. Well, he talked about the light on a hill or, you know, or something, a thousand points of light or something, he said. But it reminded me a little bit of Israel. What, what is Israel to the world? Israel is supposed to be the light to the world. And people are, should be able to look to Israel and come away with the understanding of who God is and what his marvelous salvation is. What's important to God about uh, what did he want to tell us? They could look to Israel and see that. So the spiritual life of Israel is right there in the law. Yeah, they won't be doing uh, the ceremonial law. That won't be. In other words, if the ceremonial law pointed to Christ, then it's pretty obvious that the ceremonial law is not going to be something that continues where since Christ has fulfilled all of that. And we have Hebrews to demonstrate that. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, but God prepared a body and Christ stepped into it. And so forevermore, we don't have to, I mean, we wouldn't expect Israel to uh, continue looking for a savior to come. So the whole ceremonial part of the law would not be in place. Now, really, uh, the millennium, the tribulation is only seven years. So there will be a few Jews on earth. Well, we know a few, I'd say 144,000 plus Jews on earth who will maintain the standard that God has his people in the world. And But in the millennium, we discussed what would it be like for Israel. We talked about the new covenant to Israel, how that would be in play at that point and God will pour out his spirit. I will write my laws in their hearts and in their minds. Will I write them, he says. And there's two verses. There's one, the one in Jeremiah, where he, he talks about it, and then the one in Hebrews, where he reiterates it. And he doesn't change it. He doesn't say, I have a new covenant to the church. He says, he quotes the same thing in Jeremiah, and he speaks of it as future even though people are under it now, not under that, but under the new principles of the new covenant, then all of that is in play. So yes, the spirit, now now let me just state, what, what exactly is the spiritual life of Israel? He, he gives us some ideas about it. They still will be people who keep the commandments of God. In other words, they are peculiar people. Uh, some of the things that make them peculiar are their dietary habits, there were the days, the holidays that they had. The, what makes a Jew a Jew? Uh, certainly things that distinguish them from the, the rest of the world. I think those things would still be in play. Uh, they would still, in some ways, depict uh, what salvation is because that's their role. Uh, but probably included in all of that would be the understanding of God's eternal purpose. Now, we didn't talk about this last week. Why do I say, because we are, it's revealed, and we are the ones who are making it known to everyone, as you know, in terms of, you know, the Spirit's guiding and leading us into all truth, uh, whether it be to Gentiles, to Jews, to angels, so once the, the, you know, the tribulation slash millennium 
is underway, that information is now out there. It's not like Jews are going to go back and, uh, and, you know, not have any memory of all the church age, these 2,000 plus years. All of that information is out there. So I would imagine the Jews would also understand that information and be able to teach it. Because uh, this is God's magnum opus. This is the biggest thing God ever did, is the church. So the, the Jews are going to understand that, and the Jews are going to be able to show and teach that, those things, uh, just as we are doing so now. So, so I would pause and ask if I'm on the right track or, or what you're thinking, uh, if your thinking is along those lines, before I continue. Uh, definitely, you're addressing my question directly, and I appreciate that. Um, so, yes, it, so I understand now it was the ceremonial law, which was a shadow of things to come, um, predicting Christ's arrival on earth, uh, the Messiah. That's um, right. So, were, were there other aspects of different parts of their law, even their dietary laws? Um, and the holidays and such, weren't those also um, shadows of things to come in certain ways? Yes, in some ways, that's true. Although, for instance, if you look at the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is a special sign between God and Israel. It is not a special sign between God and Gentiles. It so says Ezekiel. Uh, so, so to know that, I mean, I would say that Israel will continue having that special sign, the Sabbath, and some of the holidays and feast days uh, speak of um, God, what he was doing in terms of uh, his provision for Israel, his faithfulness towards Israel. And, you know, so there's a lot to glean for that, from that, but I think it wouldn't be less to glean I think it would be more because of we have expanded information. We have the completed canon of scripture. So what is Israel's relationship to this information? They would have to understand it and be able to uh, assimilate it into their theology. Much in the same way, we have to understand the church age information and assimilate it into our theology. We, we don't just have the church and say, well, Israel doesn't matter anymore. Because the whole thing is God's eternal purpose. So what we do is we stand on, on top of the completed canon of Scripture and we are able to orient to whatever God did throughout the ages. And it makes sense now because we understand the why of what he did. Not just the fact, oh, here's what God said we got to do and, and we better do it. But not so much that now, it's here's why we did it, or why we had to do it, why he said it, what was he thinking when it came. He, he has just revealed everything to us, so we, we now have more information as well as them. They have more information to teach. Uh, but when it comes to the gospel, there is no change there. The gospel still will be the same gospel that we have won't be, okay, in the millennium now, if, since Christ is here, it's different. Nope, it's going to be the same 
gospel that we have. The same gospel in the tribulation. So when it says uh, in Matthew 24, I think 13 or 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So that scripture, who has the gospel of the kingdom? Primarily, it will be Israel. I say primarily because anybody who's saved can give the gospel. Anyone who um, is alive in the tribulation and is saved can give the gospel. But it is as a, a nation, like right now, if someone were to, wanted to know the gospel, where would you point them to? The church. The church has the gospel. Well, if somebody wanted to know the gospel in the Old Testament, where would you point them to? The Jews, right? Just like Jesus did with the woman at the well. Even though she says, which mountain is we worship on? Is it Mount Gerizim or is it Jerusalem that the Jews say? And, you know, we have this dispute, this ongoing dispute. And Jesus really rebuked her. He says, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Salvation is of the Jews. And what was he saying when he sang that? He's saying, this is the message. They're carrying it. They're the ones carrying the torch of salvation to the world. The Jews, you want to know what salvation is. You don't go to Samaria to, to talk to the Samaritans to find out what they're doing. The Jews are the ones that are supposed to have the gospel. And Jesus said that to the woman in, in John chapter 4. So now it's the church, right? So if, if the church is off the scene, who's going to be uh, the bearers of the torch? It will be Israel. Now, does that mean only Israel can teach the gospel? No, there'll be Gentiles who are saved. In fact, there's going to be so many Gentiles saved. It's a multitude, a great multitude from every nation. I know you've read that in Revelation uh, a couple times, right? So I'll, I'll just, I'm yeah. sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Yeah. So, so that's why I say. I, I have a, yeah, go ahead. I, I have a, a bleaker outlook, um, um, mainly because here we are in the church age, and a lot of people do not understand the calling of the church age. So they they point it back to Israel, or they say it's of works. And that, those two right there represent the majority of people who call themselves Christian, um, whether or not they're saved. Um, I, I don't even know if they have their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if they're claiming that works are what's going to make them righteous. Um, I would imagine after the rapture, it might even get bleaker, like I said, um, because some some of Israel might deny that anything happened. They might just think that, oh, well, God was quiet for 2,000 years. Nothing happened. Um, so we're just going to continue doing what we've always been doing. Yeah, um, tr so true. You, when you mention that it's, you know Israel has the understanding of who they were, and in addition to that, they have the understanding of who Jesus Christ is, I'm... I'm going to say human tendency is can be a lot of people are going to overlook that and still not be acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. 
Well, I think um, in the tribulation, right, those we we have the testimony that they will come to understand, and this is where, um, and this is like where even in Romans eleven we says, and this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins and turn godlessness away from Jacob. And yes, they have certainly a large measure of godlessness now because they reject Christ. But in the tribulation, we're talking crisis evangelism. We're not saying that those Jews in the tribulation, are their focus is to teach church-age doctrine. That, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that those Jews in the tribulation's focus will be what the priority is, and that is salvation. They are to take the everlasting gospel to the world. Now, as things settle down and no tribulation, no crisis evangelism going on, I believe the Jews will be equipped in the millennium to teach further. And that would have to do with also uh, coming to church-age understanding, church-age doctrines. But um, I think... It's if you zoom out, I mean, to your point, if you zoom out, Jesus says, uh, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in that way and uh, narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there be that find it. And I would say it's even more narrow for those who have accepted the milk and gone the narrow way for them to understand the eternal purpose of God. It's even more narrow uh, that when we look at those who do understand in the church age, who are actively going out and not only telling people about the grace of God, but uh, also leading them to the full knowledge of the truth. So um, I think a lot of people, and in fact, I've seen a lot of examples. Uh, listen, we're not the only ones out here teaching the Word of God. Uh, I would be foolish to think that that is the case. I would fall into the Elisha complex where I'm the only one, God. Look, at I'm the only one. All this, they have torn down your altars. They have done this. No, no, that's not so. Uh, it, it, even if I don't know it, just like I, uh, Elijah didn't, I believe there are other people out there teaching the Word of God just like us. They're, and they're thinking probably, yeah, yeah, there's few and far between. But to note, there are those out there. God has his witness in the world. And I've seen people out there who are teaching the gospel. And the, the, find the weakness, if, if I find a weakness in it, usually it's because they don't, follow through with the plan of God. They don't have the eternal purpose of God, so uh, all the scriptures are sort of funneled into a gospel construct. Because of that, uh, I, don't, I think it's less effective in their teaching, although at the very heart of what they're saying is, yeah, we do understand the grace of God, no works, it's, it's free, it's a gift. They, they get that. But because they don't know the eternal purpose of God, it, it is hard for them to understand and interpret a lot of what the scriptures are telling us. So, I mean, yeah, to your point, yeah, I, I don't have a, a broad outlook, and neither did Jesus. 
I'll pause. Okay, I think you addressed, uh, thoroughly addressed what I was thinking about, but thank you. Oh, you, you're most welcome. I'm glad uh, you were able to bring this up. And it sort of uh, goes right hand in hand with what we want to talk about um, in uh, Romans. So we, we should move on to Romans. And uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 10. As I used to say, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. And I hear pages fluttering. And, uh, so we want to take a look at these important verses. Actually, it's just one verse we're going to go to today uh, and, and some introduction. And let's get into it. Romans 10.1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That's all we want to look at tonight, that one phrase. Uh, it's a couple phrases we made out of it, but Let's dig in. The apostles' desire for the Israelites is but a reflection of the desire of God. It was God who called Israel and provided them with assets needed to be his priest nation to the world. It was God who sent his Christ to Israel to save and restore Israel. God wants the Israelites to be saved more than anyone else. When we look at all that Israel has done over the many years since God brought them out of Egypt. None of that is more important than Israel's salvation. I'm glad this verse is here for our review. It puts the most critical priorities in perspective for us. So let's look at this. It's really only two phrases. Could go pretty quick, right? Let's take our time and see what we got here. So the first phrase, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites. That's the first. So point A is many would have a dismissive attitude toward, toward Israel for all they have done, but not God. I see God still reaching out his gracious hands to Israel. I'm, God's salvation never uh, was withheld or withdrawn or Israel did some horrible, dastardly, uh, revengeful, spiteful, sinful things all throughout the history. And they're chronicled for us. We can go back, review them. We can remark how stubborn and recalcitrant and and malicious, uh, running after evil, uh, the Israelites were. And they, they really, God took from the Israel, he took from Gentiles, and he took the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and made a race of people we call the Hebrew, and which later also called the Jews, Israel. He made those people. He took them out of Gentiles. Now, the church is taken out of Jews and Gentiles. So just know uh, there is no illustrious uh, uh, heritage for us in the church. In fact, we were, it's, he tells us where we came from. We were dead 
in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the prince of the ruler of the air who is at work in those who are disobedient. So none of us can go back and say, well, you know, I'm a Jew, I'm a Gentile. None of that means anything. And uh, what the sin nature you were born with, what that is, is what controlled you, uh, whether you were Jew or Gentile. And I like what Paul said, every time I try to do good, evil is present with me. Nothing Paul tried to do every time he thought about what was good, because he could see the law. As a Jew, he could see what the law was. But every time he, he thought that, well, maybe I'll do some good, his sin nature would corrupt that good. And overrule Paul's desire. He, he says, I couldn't even, I find I can't even do good. So now I'm like a prisoner in this body of sin. And hence, what a wretched man I am. Who can deliver me from the body, this body of death? He was trapped. So none of us have some sort of illustrious past that we should point back to and say, I'm this or I was that. No. But so I, I could think about it this way from God's perspective. I could see how God could dismiss everything that happened to Israel. God's not mad. God didn't keep a record of wrongs. In fact, there are scriptures that say he, he will remove your sin as far from the east is from the west. He will cast your sins into the depths of the sea, never to ever be seen again. So this is not something that God is, but I'm just pointing out how different we are. God is that way. God is not looking at Israel and saying, yeah, well, you know, for me to offer you your great salvation, I'm going to need you to repent. I need you to come back and and make some restitution for what you've done and how you've behaved, especially toward my Christ. No. All they have to do is believe. That's it. God's grace covers them. God's not mad about what they have done. And even when you add it all up and say, look at all that they've done, there's nothing that they have to do but simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they can have salvation. And guess what? If they do it in this age, they're going to be brothers and sisters with us. Just like the beginning of this verse says, brothers and sisters. When he says that, some of those brothers and sisters are from Jewish backgrounds and some of them are from Gentile backgrounds. So, Brothers and sisters, God's gracious hands are still reaching out to you. And I say hands to Israel, really. You could look at Israel and say, well, that's Israel is a nation. So God's saying, I'll save a nation. That's not what I'm saying at all. And if you look at the verse, his heart's, his heart's desire and prayer to God is for individual Israelites. Not Israel. Now, of course, he wants Israel as a nation, uh, obviously, to be saved, but he has to reach out individually to each one in order to do so. Each Israelite should come to the understanding of 
what God has uh, brought to them through the person of Christ and believe in him. So God, if it was us, we would want to punish Israel for the way they behaved. If it was us, we would say, you know what, salvation is good for everybody else except them. That would be the sin nature talking, not the righteousness of God and his gracious offer. But just know God is way different than we are. So he still reaches out, no problem. He's not upset, not mad uh, with Israel's behavior. Let's move on, point B. Obviously, the free will we have is important to God. But it's permissive free will, which is what I'm calling it here, obviously, because it can't be free unless God allows it to be free. His permissive free will to us is not always according to his perfect will for us. Hence Israel. God could make Israel believe in Christ. He could do that. He could go in and manipulate their will if he has the power to change the minds of every person in Israel and have them believe in Christ. But God can't do that at the same time and also be the one who has given them what we call free will. So you could see, obviously, Israel has not uh, done God's will in the past. And yet, it is important as this is to God. He does not manipulate their will. He still expects each person to, of their own will, believe in Christ. He is not, he, I mean, not to say he won't send the Spirit to enlighten them to uh, the gospel and uh, help them understand what it is, what the gracious offer is, but each one of them must determine for themselves to commit the matter of their soul's salvation to Christ, just like we did. And that is what it is. Don't just say, I believe, right? Understand what, it, what you're saying when you say, I believe. Just understand what that means. It means that you have committed the important matter of whether you will be saved or lost to the person of Christ. He now manages that for us. We don't have to worry about it anymore. We don't have to think, oh, well, what happens if, if God comes and I'm in a movie theater doing something wrong? <laughs> this is what we used to think growing up. Silly things like that. But none of that matters. So our permission, our will is God gives us that. God is the one who created free will. But that free will that he created can say no to him. Imagine that. We can say no to God if we want. And God created us. Yes, he created us perfect. But, but with the will we have, we can say no to God. We can refuse him if we want. But that leads us to point C. So, there are consequences to our free will. And I quote, or I put in parentheses here, with freedom comes responsibility. If you have something free, if this is something that is God has given you as uh, part of our makeup, that means, that comes with responsibility. And uh, one way of saying it is consequences. In other words, 
there are things that can happen as a result of us exercising our free will. It's free, but don't think it's free from responsibility. So we can see that in society, the society in which we live. So there are consequences to the actions that we may take. You could go out right now and murder someone. I certainly would not be advocating or telling you that's a good thing to do. That is not a good thing to do. And maybe I shouldn't even come up with such an analogy, which is terrible to think about murdering someone. But if you did, you are responsible for that. You can't say, well, um, I murdered somebody and therefore it was, I was free to do it. So I, should, I was able to do it, so it was in my periphery of responsibility to do that or not, and I did it. Yes, you did it, but no, even society says you've used your will wrongly as far as we are concerned, and we are either going to lock you up for the rest of your life or we may execute you. There's consequences. Uh, we, and so what, what happens? Somebody says, you know, you need to stop and think about what the consequences are before you move forward with the, whatever your free will decision is. But just know your free will decision has definite consequences. You speed down the road, which is probably a better uh, analogy to murder. You're speeding down the road going 120 and there's a policeman over there. And what? He's... He has the right to stop you because you're breaking the law. Right? You could say, well, I have the right to do that. I can do whatever I want. I have free will. Yeah, well, you do. And there are consequences to your free will. He's going to do what he has to do to what they say to make society safe. So those things, we already understand that. I don't even have to say that. I could just have quote, said what I wanted to say here, but I gave a couple analogies to be sure. So... If not, right, uh, well, this is point, um, point C. So we must also realize there are consequences with God as well. So even though society is over us, God is over our society. So we should know that even, uh, so we, we can recognize our free will has consequences with society. We should also recognize that our free will will have consequences with God. He's the one who gave it to us. So certainly it makes us responsible to note. So point D, here in our verse, the, uh, our, the apostle is reasoning with us. He's talking brothers and sisters. And this is something he wants us to consider about those who are lost. Now think about that. Israel, if he's... If his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, well, I would say they're lost. And you have to stop and think about that. Not only is he saying the Israelites, the majority of them, are lost. He's not saying every person who is an Israelite is lost. That would be silly. He's an Israelite. Others are. All the apostles were Israelites. So he's certainly not saying all Israelites are lost. So he's saying the majority of them do not believe. And they are blind to the gospel and so forth. So, but it's 
clearly says that if somebody can be saved, and that's his prayer to God for them, for them, that they'd be saved. Well, it's clear to me that the reason why they need salvation is because they're lost. Some people, so we could divide this world into two groups, really, two groups. Those who are saved and those who are lost. Now, we could even further refine that group by saying those who are saved are said to be in the church. And those who are lost are either Jews or categorized as Jews or Gentile. If you're a Jew or a Gentile in this age, you're lost. If you're a Jew who believes in Christ, then you're in the church. If you're a Gentile who believes in Christ, then you're in the church as well. So there it is. It's 1 Corinthians 10, the very last verse. Paul talks about three, the three types of people that are on the earth. Jews, Gentiles. Jews, Greeks, he used Greeks for Gentiles. Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Those three categories. That's it. People are lost or saved. That's the reality. That's not, you know, it's kind of fuzzy when we look at it because we're like, well, I don't know who's saved. I don't know who's lost. You could say that, but from God's perspective, he does know. And there's either saved people or lost people on this earth. That's what you have to think about. So let's continue. Point E in our notes here. We're moving forward. For Israel to have God's best they would need to believe in Christ. If not, there would be more of the same discipline. And this is, I want to read Romans 3, 9 to follow up. So obviously this is where they failed. And we can understand that uh, because they failed. In Romans chapter 9, we went through uh, Israel is, re is rejecting that on that God called the church. They're rejecting that. And they're saying, no, God, you, 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 can't do, you can't do that. You can't stop Israel and, and, and turn away from Israel and now elect the church. You cannot do that. Well, these are the same people who refuse to believe in Christ. And so they got problems about seeing what God's eternal purpose is anyway. They got problems about seeing what God's purpose for Israel was, his true purpose for them, because they never realized it from the point of salvation. They never, never understood their call if they not, are not saved. God's ideal for Israel is that they would be saved, as you can see in this verse. So Romans 3, uh, where are we? Romans 3, and we'll look at 9. So it says, what shall we say then? Or what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And this is when he says we, he's talking about we Jews, but it's Paul reasoning. And what is the answer? Not at all. That's emphatic. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So as it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. Now you talk about the Jews. Jews aren't righteous and they have the law. How about some Jews that have the law are righteous maybe? No, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Why do you think he says here, not even one? It's because the Jews think that having the law somehow makes them acceptable to God. Not even one. Yeah, that's what you have to consider here. So, for first things first. First thing is we need to come to God, just like when Nicodemus came to Christ, and he, I'm sure he he had an agenda. Imagine I'm going to meet with this person who's doing all these signs, wonders, miracles. I know this person is from God. I, I wonder what questions. Nicodemus had for Christ. I wonder what they were. Tell us, Nicodemus. He, he, he we don't ever get to what was on Nicodemus's mind because Christ interceded and took over the conversation and got right to the point. He said, Nicodemus, uh, you must be born again. And that changed the color of the entire conversation. You must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus did not understand what that meant or the implications. So he said some things that were pretty foolish. Fleshly, you could say. Earthly. Not spiritual whatsoever. So he did not understand. Uh, well, I can say uh, it's important that we do understand that what is the priority when we talk to people. Sure, they have an agenda. And no, we won't be able to cut people off like Christ did there all the time and, and, and say what we know is most important. We may not be able to do that. We're not Christ. So we may have to look for an opportunity, but we got to learn what is important when we talk to people, what's important to God, where the, the people are as opposed to God. Remember, I already said how God sees everybody Straight up, lost. He can tell you the number of people right now who are lost and the number of people who are saved, who are on the earth. And he could go on and tell you of those who died. He could do that. Who was lost, who was saved. So this is um, point F. While we cannot look at someone and know if they are saved or lost, we can know, we know that everyone who is lost, what, what do they need? They need God's eternal salvation. They need it especially if they openly refuse it. When we say openly refuse it, that means they're against the gospel. They don't believe the gospel and don't want to hear what the gospel is. They openly, just like the Jews, they hated it. They hated for you to talk about that Christ is the way. Um, and others, there are Gentiles as well. So we know they, they need it. Now we still are not sure if they're saved or lost. But one thing we know, that whatever they're talking about, it is not the gospel. So they need to hear the gospel too. If what's in their heart, well, they may be saved. Maybe they believed at one point and now they're off the track like the Galatians were. Talking about Jesus. Well, you gotta be circumcised or keep the law. Maybe they, uh, they're off the track a little bit, but, and they're saved in their heart. 
God did it, but we still need to give them the gospel. So what did Paul do? He gave them the gospel. He gave the Galatians the gospel. Again, that's what they needed. So if we got to give the salvation, uh, the gospel to everybody, his eternal salvation, to everybody who needs it. And especially, as I say, those who openly refuse it. Point G, who needs the gospel? Everyone who is not saved. So it is, the, it is your heart's desire. This is a question, actually. So is it your heart's desire and prayer to God that all be saved? Is it? Now, we know it's God's. This is 2 Peter 3, 9. I'll just read it. Uh, if you, all of you know this scripture, probably can quote it already. So maybe I don't have to read it, but I will. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the Lord clearly is not confused about the gospel, is not confused about who needs it. He understands that. It's his heart's desire and prayer to God that everyone be saved. Everyone. Not some people. Everyone. And we could say, well, why or how do we know this? That, is he just talking to say, well, I, I like everybody to be saved. And that leads us to the next point. Point, point H it is. We know what God did behind the scenes that support his desire. In other words, how do we know that God really, really does have this desire in his heart? Well, he did some things to prove, to demonstrate that he really does. That is his desire. And, and there's four things I put here, uh, just so you know. One is he crafted a grace plan of salvation where everybody is on the same uh, it's on a level playing field. We could say we're all in the same boat together. How, how did he do that? Only he could have done that. That's Romans 11.32. Let's just read that quickly. Uh, Romans 11. And we're looking at verse 32. There's more in here, but for God, it says, um, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Now, how did he do that? He did that through Adam. When Adam disobeyed God, there were consequences, not only for Adam, but for those who would be born in Adam. We should know that. So he bound everyone over to disobedience. Right? Man didn't, didn't just get in trouble and God says, okay, uh, I'm going to condemn only the ones who, who anger me. No, he, he condemned the entire human race in Adam. That's part of what we call the bad news. So then it says he did it for a reason. There's a, there's a point behind it. In order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. So, so now we understand something. God did it for a reason. He, didn't, he wasn't just angry. He did it. And there's wisdom in this. right? And, uh, so that he may have mercy on them all. That's the second half of the verse. He bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. I think I was reading the previous verse. 
um, about them being disobedient. But but here, verse 32, let's correct that. God has, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So the same salvation for everyone. This is God, as I say, crafting or uh, de- in coming up with this so great salvation. How did he do it? What's it all about? There's wisdom that goes into this. Imagine if he hadn't done this, bound everyone over to disobedience. There would have to be him respecting the righteousness of some and not others, or uh, to some degrees. But nope, he says, no, none of that. Everyone is bound over to disobedience. And then the mercy to all, there's only one way of salvation, not many. And everybody is lost, everybody is condemned, and so forth and so on, so that he may have mercy. That's God's wisdom in this. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. This is something God did. So point two, he has imputed every sin of every person ever born to Christ and judged them all to his satisfaction. So we get that from our verse in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.19. And 1 John 2.2, 5.19 says that God was reconciling the world in Christ, not counting their sins against them. So God does not count our sins, which are many, to us. He has imputed them to Christ. And then he judged them. And then as a result, 1 John 2, 2 says, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So every sin of every person, God is satisfied with the work of Christ. Because he imputed their sins to Christ. Then he judged them. And what does he stand back and say? I'm satisfied with the work of Christ. Uh, so it, it satisfies my justice. Point three, he imputes the righteousness of Christ by grace to everyone who believes. And this is Roman three, Romans 3, 21 through 24. So everybody who believes in Christ also doesn't just receive salvation or justification, but they receive righteousness as a basis for that justification. And the righteousness they receive is the righteousness of Christ. He took our sins. He imputes us the very goodness we need in order to have a relationship with him. There it is. It's not, well, after you're saved, how many times you went to church or you sang in the choir, you were a deacon, you gave money, you, you prayed, you went to Bible study. None of those things mattered in terms of your goodness or recommendation to God. What matters is that God has done it already. He has imputed the righteousness of Christ to you. You didn't even know it if you didn't. And this is your standing before God. Your standing is not your behavior. Your standing is the very righteousness that Christ earned when he lived on this earth. Point four. He reverses the verdict of condemnation from condemnation, which we were all born with under Adam. He reverses that to justify. Uh, And that's the verdict that is... Uh, that God, he bangs the gavel down and says, justify for those who believe in Christ. And this is John 5, 24, where it says, uh, 
for in Christ there is no judgment. And in Romans 5, 1, there's also uh, that we are, now that we are justified by the grace of God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or you could have added Romans 8, 1 here, there is now therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is That was reversed. And that is a marvelous thing to think about. This is God crafting a salvation which cannot fail, which is fair to every single person that would ever be born on planet Earth. No uh, favors or manipulation or coddling God or bribing God. None of that can happen with this salvation. So, point I. If it is our priority and desire that everyone benefit from this grace salvation, what can we do to support that desire? In other words, uh, we saw how God desires that everyone be saved, right? And there's a verse, right? Uh, you could, I think we'll turn to it, even though it's not in our notes. This is 1 Timothy. I'm going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've quoted this verse a lot. I don't know if we saw this angle here. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. So watch this. This is good, this is God's will, and pleases God, our Savior. This is, these are words that talk about what God wants and what he desires. Same thing we, we're talking about. Verse 4, what does he want? Who wants all people to be saved. Now, that, that's same thing we've been talking about but we've been directing it toward Israel, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So there, there you have God's desire. But what you have, we always read that verse. This verse has become very, very foundational for this church. The two things there, uh, the one, salvation, and then after salvation, God's will that we all come to the full knowledge of the truth. And then, but then... God backs up or supports his desire with action. He didn't just say, well, this is what I want. He supports that. Look at the next verse. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. And look at this. Who gave himself as a ransom for all people that has now been witnessed at the proper time. So what did, what did he do? The backup, he sent his son to be the, for all people. He didn't just say, hey, it's my desire that all people be saved. No, he said, it's my desire, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to impute the sins of the world to Christ. I'm going to, whoever believes, I'm going to impute righteousness to Christ. Right? This, this is backed up by action on God's, God's part. So I'm saying, if we have the same priority that God does, then what action can we take? How can, how can we support that, that desire? And I gave two thoughts here. One, after salvation, we can learn about our salvation. We can understand it, adopt the proper attitude to be witnesses of his marvelous grace. Now, this is important because you could say, well, what can you do? What can, God did the, the most he could do. He sent his son, he imputed our sin, he judged his own son, on and on. He certainly desires everybody to be saved. What can we do to support that? What can we do to have the same attitude 
that God has. Uh, we can't pay for the sins of the world. We can't, all that's done. So what about us? If we really do have the proper attitude, how, what does that look like? I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. So let's, let's read it. The proper attitude. And it's, so this is Paul's, Paul's coming, coming back and giving us this. Okay, so he says, wait a minute. 19, okay, yeah, yeah, 19. So, though I am free and belong to no one, notice, I can, I have a will, right? I don't, I don't have to do this. This is not something I'm made to do. It's not like the law, where we have to go out and give the gospel, and this is a law. Paul says, I'm free. I don't, I'm not responsible to anyone. I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I be, and we're talking about attitude here. See, so Paul is saying, I approach people with this attitude. I'm free, but you know what? I'm a slave. I'm your slave. What does it mean to be your slave? It means I want to serve you. I want to give you what you need. And here, what you need is the gospel. This is what he says. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To Esther, when the Jews, to those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the laws, the law. To those not having a law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under the, a Christ law, so as to win those not having law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this. For the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So there are blessings to share with these, but by giving the gospel, by making yourself available to people. Notice he didn't say, and to the church, I give, um, I, you know, I act like whatever, so I can give, so that I may win some to the church. Remember, I said there were three categories of people Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Well, he's not giving the gospel to the church because the church is already saved. Right? That's, that's why they're not even listed, in, and I don't think it is. I'm just pointing it out here. I don't think you, you would have thought that. So you've got to have that attitude. And then Romans 1, 14 and 15. Here's, here's the other classic verse that deals with attitude here. 14 and 15, he says, this is Paul. I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm obligated. I owe them. That's how I look at them. So when, I, when Paul approaches somebody, it's like he's saying, I owe them money. I owe them something. This, this is his attitude. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is why, in, in verse 15, just so you know, exactly what we're talking about. This is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So when Paul says this, notice that attitude of obligation. It allows Paul to be eager. Paul was ready, as, I, as he says in Timothy, apt or ready to, to teach anytime someone was, he saw an opening. Paul was there. He wanted to, he, he was eager to preach. So this is why I say, um, 
when we think about the gospel and what can we do? Well, we could first learn about it, give ourselves to, to the understanding and uh, you know, the gospel, making sure we're very aware of how it is administered, what God did, what, what our responsibility uh, is in terms of the gospel and, and, and make sure that is very clear. And then we can have the proper attitude um, and that, that's important. And then point number two, we can accept and begin to make ourselves available as ambassadors of Christ, ministers of reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians 5.18, right? There's a role that we can adopt or when we believe in Christ. First, we have to come to understand, and this is after salvation. We can't do this before salvation. After we're saved, God says, you know what? You can be an ambassador for Christ. What is an ambassador of Christ? A minister of reconciliation. That's what that, if you read that 2 Corinthians 5, 18. And you're supposed to go around and help God, uh, the Holy Spirit, who is witnessing to the hearts of unbelievers out there. And we already read in John 8 through 11, uh, John uh, 16, 8 through 11, what the Holy Spirit's focus is. And you can also uh, partner with him in helping reach the hearts of those to turn them to Christ. Yeah. And, and you, can, you will have this prestigious title. You are an ambassador of Christ. Yeah, that's, that, that is worthy, <laughs> let me tell you, of what God is telling us about uh, how important salvation is in this world. Point number two. Uh, so it goes like this, my heart's desire, uh, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. In keeping with the context, Israel's failure is that they were not saved Israel. Right? They were not a saved Israel. And this is why they failed. I mean, like I say, like Abraham and Paul simply says it directly. Why I say Abraham? Because Abraham is the pattern. He's the father of faith, father Abraham. Why do we say father Abraham? Because his pattern of coming to God and believing is the, and being justified is the pattern for, it should have been the pattern for Israel. Although after Abraham, 400 years later, here they got the law. And uh, somehow they twisted the law into a system of salvation. Uh, Paul just tells them directly. One is that they may be saved. Now, if you talk to somebody who thinks they're saved and, he, and you tell them, I'm, I'm telling you this so that you can be saved, that will be insulting to them. So you can't, you know, this is, this is Paul's desire and he's reasoning with us. He's telling us, directly what he needs to tell us so that we can understand and become an ambassador as well. He's telling exactly the point. Israel's lost. They reject Christ. In fact, just like it says in Romans 11, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, when he says they, he's talking about Israel, are enemies for your sakes. But as far as the election is concerned, they are beloved because God still has a plan that includes Israel for their future. They're enemies. Yeah. 
that's pretty heavy to think about. Yeah, they, they failed. They're not saved. They openly reject Christ. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Remember, they said, uh, even after Pilate, a Gentile who was vacillating, uh, you know, weak, when, when he tried to free Christ, they said, no, that's not, you beat him? We want him crucified. You mean you're going to release somebody, Barabbas or Christ? Well, we'll take Barabbas, who's a thief and a murderer. We'll take him over Christ. Crucify him, they said. They openly rejected their Messiah, who performed signs, wonders, and miracles day after day in the public, not in some cave somewhere doing some hocus pocus, but in public, he performed miracle after miracle, sign after sign, every day, all day, all day long. And yet, they said, crucify him. I can see the scripture very clear that says, they hated me without cause. Because it really, it was satanic in the way they responded in this, in this most crucial moment in human history. Point B, not only is it God's desire that the Israelites be saved, their reason for refusing salvation is spelled out clearly in the next verses. So we're going to get the next verses that tells us. Paul doesn't just say, yeah, they're, they're, they, we, we pray that they're, for their salvation. Why do we pray for someone's salvation? Because we think they're lost. Well, Paul knows they're lost. And I just read or you know, quoted a few scriptures that support that idea. That, yeah, they, they were not, as a group, the Israelites, the majority of them rejected Christ to his face. So um, the next few verses, Romans 10, 2, 3, and 4, will spell out directly what Paul is saying. We'll get to those in the coming weeks. Point uh, C, to note, just to note, saved is a permanent status. Now, you know, it depends. You know, a lot of religious training that you may have had. I don't know what their view about someone who's saved or not saved. But here, it is a biblical term. And it is a permanent status. Now, here's a reasoning. You might not find this in the Bible, but it's my reasoning. If you are still lost or in danger of being lost, you are not saved. <laughs> okay? If you're saved... With the, with the prospect that maybe you could still be lost, well, then you never were saved. If you're saved, then that means you're saved from being lost. It's a permanent status. Eternal security is a part of the gospel. Somebody who's equivocating about eternal security is in danger that they could be rejecting salvation by grace. Now, I can't look in a person's heart, but I can tell you when we talk about people resisting God and who needs the gospel and all that, well, you know, we might consider that somebody who doesn't understand eternal security may need to hear the gospel. Point D. The Apostle Paul came from Israel. He, that was his culture. Yeah. He, he knew how far Israel had drifted from grace. And if we look, I just pointed out where Paul talked about his heritage is Jewish. 
if you're wondering who Paul is. He was Saul of Tarsus, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And it, if you want to read Philippians 3, 4 through 6, you can, you can see that. So we're going to move forward, but I just want to point out Paul understood the Jew, and he understood it very well because he was a teacher of Pharisees. That's Pharisee of Pharisees means he was a teacher of Pharisees. And so now he understands grace, and he knows exactly where Israel stood and what they need. Point E, if you are not saved, you are lost. Now, these are the only two thoughts here. If you're not saved then you're lost, condemned, spiritually dead, spiritually dead, ruled by the sinful nature under Satan's influence. That's who you are if you're lost. So you need to think about it. And you think about, need to think about developing friendships with unbelievers. Just think about it for a minute. If you're developing a friendship with an unbeliever, here's what they are. They're lost, condemned, spiritually dead, ruled by the sin nature, under Satan's influence. Yeah, all of that you can find in those scriptures right there. Romans 3, 9. I already read Romans 3, 9 through 12. There's none righteous, none who do good. Now, if you want to read the rest of it, what God says is even worse than that. Their mouths are open graves. They Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. And I could go on. This is not my opinion of unbelievers. This is God's opinion of unbelievers. So be careful. Just like it says in 1 Corinthians, evil companions corrupt good morals. So uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21, it talks about how all of us are dead. All of us are condemned because of what Adam did. It, it's not their fault that they are under the influence of Satan. This is literally what happened with Adam. So I'm not going to go through all the verses, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You know that well. As This will be something you could follow up and make sure you understand. If you haven't read those verses, you need to probably reread them. But it's that's the deal. If you're not saved... Look, people who don't understand salvation are running around here trying to tell you how to live the Christian life when they are not sure about works and grace and all that. But yet... Somehow they become experts on living the Christian life. So I would say do not take any advice from people who, who are openly rejecting the grace of God. I mean, why would we take advice from them? They don't have the spirit uh, influencing and leading and guiding them in all truth. Point F. This verse was written, this verse that we're talking about, my heart's and desire and prayer to God for Israel that they may be saved. This verse was written over 1,900 years ago. I don't have the, the exact date. I'm just throwing this number because I know it may be more than that. I would say it is still true today. It is. Israel is the Israelites have not changed. If you go over to Israel, which is a, a nation now, it is an unbelieving nation. And I would say the majority of those there do not believe in Jesus Christ, just as it was. So you could continue my heart's desire and prayer, not only just for the Israelites, but for all the people in the world, as God does, 
stretch it not just to Israel, but to everyone. His heart, his heart desires that everyone be saved and all come to a change of mind about Christ. So this verse still stands. Israel's still in the same shoes they were when Paul wrote these words. And we're going to close with point G. There is much work for us who can see it. Who can see it? Let's go to John 4, 33 through 43. Just read this as we close. John chapter 4 and 33 to 43 are the verses. I'll read. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? This is the woman at the well story, right? This is what they said. Could someone have brought him food? Because, you know, he doesn't seem like he's hungry anymore. 34, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the, his work. Don't you have a saying? It is four months until har harvest, I tell you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said the woman, to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. After the two days, he left for Galilee. And the thought is, open our eyes. There are people lost all around you, every one of us. All we have to do is open our eyes to see. Let's bow our heads as we close. We are out of time. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your heart's desire, to know what is the priority for you that we, all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We thank you for this church where it is an outlet for us to not only rehearse, but to understand the gospel and not only that, but the meat of the word that you have made available to us. Thank you for each and every person that has been here, that shows uh, an interest in coming to know you in such a manner, to know the gospel, to know these things for themselves, to study to show their, ourselves approved to God, workmen that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we thank you for this church. We thank you for each person and uh, and their families and their extended families as well, asking that we will be lights uh, to, to them for this wonderful, glorious, gracious message that we call the gospel. It can save, 
the words of life. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.